How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. On this episode of the show, I'm very excited to have Dr. Stephen Gundry on the show. Dr. Gundry is a former cardiac surgeon and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Plant Paradox. His new book just came out and it's called The Longevity Paradox and it goes deep into what Dr. Gundry believes to be the ultimate prescription for an optimized life and health span. Now, Dr. Gundry's ideas have been met in the past with controversy, particularly surrounding lectins, a group of plant proteins that he indicts as one of the major culprits in modern chronic disease. But as a celebrated professor of surgery and inventor of certain life-saving medical devices that are still in use today, and a practicing physician, I welcomed the opportunity to discuss his new book with him with open arms and an open mind. Plus, he's my friend. So over the next hour, you're gonna learn the one test that every human should get, according to Dr. Gundry, the specific group of foods he thinks that we're all eating too much of, and I'm not talking about nightshades, how to boost gut resilience, and the surprising trick that you can use to enhance the appearance of your skin from within. I think you're really gonna love this episode of the show, but before we get into it, this episode is powered by my friends at Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic makes a number of great mushroom-infused products like coffees and tonics that you can use to begin your morning, like their Lion's Mane-infused coffee, or end your day, like their Reishi Elixir. Now, medicinal or not, I'm a huge fan of mushrooms. In fact, there was a recent study published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease that found that seniors who consumed about 150 grams of cooked mushrooms per week performed better on neuropsychological tests and had a 50% reduced risk of mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, which is often considered pre-dementia. Now, this was an observational study, not a placebo-controlled randomized trial, but it does suggest that mushrooms have a number of health-boosting compounds in them, and so I try to include mushrooms in my diet whenever possible. And although I would never make the claim that Four Sigmatic products can prevent you from developing mild cognitive impairment, it is interesting to note that lion's mane, which is a an extract that they use in some of their coffees and elixirs, has been shown in a separate clinical trial out of Japan to actually boost cognition in patients that had already developed mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. All in all, really interesting stuff. If you want to try out any of Four Sigmatic's wonderful products, you can head to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max to save a whopping 15% off of anything at their website. I'm a big fan. All their coffees are organic and uh, yeah, I drink them regularly. All right, friends. Well, we're just seconds away from getting into um, the episode with Dr. Stephen Gundry. If you'd like to support the Genius Life, well, that would mean the world to me. There are three simple ways that you can do it. One, please go to uh, iTunes or wherever you're listening to this episode of the show and leave a rating and review. Hopefully I've earned that five-star rating, but if I haven't, let me know why. The second way that you can uh, support this episode of the show is by joining my newsletter at maxlugavir.com, which helps me get the word out about other projects that I am um, proud of and want to send your way or science that I think you should know about, products that I'm really digging and the like. Again, that's at maxlugavir.com. And the third way, finally, that you can support The Genius Life is by simply spreading the word about it. Let your followers know how much you are digging this podcast. Talk about it on the water cooler at your office. Let your brother or your sister or your mom or dad, or even your cat, know that you're living the genius life and you are loving it. It doesn't cost you anything, nor does it contain any calories. All right, guys. Well, that's all for my introduction. I uh, appreciate you listening to it. If you're inspired, don't forget to pick up Dr. Gundry's new book. It's called The Longevity Paradox, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age, available now wherever books are sold. And on with the show. Dr. Gundry, thanks so much for being with me. Well, hey, it's great to be back with you, Mac. Yeah. Um, so a lot has changed for you since the publication of The Plant Paradox. And now you've got your new book that just came out. It's called The Longevity Paradox. I've uh, I've skimmed it. I've read um, certain passages. And I'm very impressed at the, uh, the depth of research that you unearth. So congr <laughs> con congratulations on the book. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, just... Uh just released March 19th, and so far, so good. Looks like it's heading for another bestseller, so um, really excited. That is exciting. Um, so I want to get into it a little bit uh, over the next hour. You know, in the, in the first book, you obviously um, popularized lectins. For many people, I'm sure, it was the first time they'd ever heard the word lectin. So why don't you just, you know, give us uh, an overview of what you're trying to accomplish in the longevity paradox. 
Well, the, the longevity paradox in a way takes, takes off where the plant paradox uh, left off. And I think one of the messages from the, the plant paradox was that one of our major uh, normal defense systems against lectins, and lectins are plant proteins that are designed to protect the plant from being eaten, by their predators, us among others, uh, we we devised a defense system against these lectins, and part of that defense system is our own set of bacteria and fungi and viruses in our gut. And it, it turns out that uh, the microbiome uh, actually likes eating lectins. As I, as I talked about in the plant paradox, there's even a bug that enjoys eating gluten. And for those of your listeners who don't know, gluten is a lectin. Uh, it's one of many. In fact, most gluten-free foods have actually probably far worse lectins than gluten. But anyhow, there's a bug that eats gluten. And if you stop eating gluten-containing foods, that bug basically doesn't have much to eat and leaves. And there's pretty interesting evidence that if you then re-expose yourself to gluten and you're sensitive to gluten, uh, that bug isn't around but do protect you and you'll actually react more vigorously to gluten. So that's just an example of how our microbiome, uh, among other things, was built not only to protect us uh, against the things we eat, but uh, the book, The Longevity Paradox, is how, in fact, almost everything that's going to happen to you, uh, good and bad, is because of who lives in your microbiome, the types of bacteria that live in your microbiome, and how those bacteria interact with your immune system and also with the wall of your gut and, for instance, the wall of your mouth, your oral microbiome. So the book is the care and feeding uh, of your microbiome to have you die young at a ripe old age. Now, the longevity paradox is so named because most people kind of look at what, what's happening uh, as we age, and really that doesn't look very appealing. Um, the idea of getting our hip and knees replaced and getting stents or bypass surgery and doing all that and then uh, ending up you know, in a chronic care facility uh, drooling in our oatmeal is, is not what looks appealing. Uh, but the good news is that through some simple changes that people can make, and the book is all about these changes, you can really at any point in your life uh, completely change uh, your fate. Your fate is not your genetic fate, and that's one of the myths that uh, I tear apart very early in the book. Yeah, you talk about the fact that um, for a long time our lifespans uh you know, seem to have increased due to more potent medical interventions, but that there's actually been a reversal yeah. over the past couple of years. Can you speak to that? And also, if you can touch on the difference between lifespan and health span. Yeah. You know, lifespan really just takes an average of, you know, how, how long people live. And up until recently, uh, lifespan has been increasing uh, because so much mortality occurred in early infancy and childhood diseases. In fact, I just got back from uh, Ethiopia with Charity Water, and infectious diarrhea is the number one cause of death uh, among infants and children in Ethiopia. And it's true for most of the third world. So with modern sanitation, for instance, with modern antibiotics and vaccines, we've actually been able to, in the Western world and much of the Eastern world, been able to stop early childhood mortality. 
and through you know medical advances and including advances in heart surgery, which I'm proud of, uh, we've been able to keep people alive longer. But uh, for the last three years in a row in America, our lifespan has now started to shorten. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that the current baby boomers, me, uh, will live longer than uh, my children, uh, the Gen Xers. Uh, and that's pretty scary. And getting back to health span, it's what most of us realize, and again, the longevity paradox is, we may be getting older, but we're spending longer and longer of our time in going downhill, our health span is actually decreasing. The number of years where we actually have good health and are free of diseases and chronic diseases. And I think that's the big problem. And I think that's what everyone is fearful about. Um, for instance, we know that, uh, again, the baby boomers at any particular age in their 50s and 60s and soon to enter the 70s, are sicker on more medications than their parents were at the same chronological age. So that's where health span is becoming more and more important. So this is, I mean, of critical relevance to me personally, um, because, you know, my, my mother just passed away a couple of months ago at the age of 66. And prior to her passing, she... Uh, you know, she had this dementia for nearly, nearly a decade. Right. And her mother, my grandmother on the maternal side lived to 96 and was more or less intact cognitively until the very end. And, you know, physically, you know, her, she, she faltered, but there was this huge and obvious difference mm -hmm. um, in mm -hmm. their, in their health spans and lifespans. Yeah. So, I mean, here I have this, this now risk. I mean, I don't want to have the health that my mom health, uh, that my mom had. So I'm particularly interested in your prescription for a longer life and health span. Yeah. You know, it, the, the amazing thing is, as I was you know, looking at, at all the research, there's, and I'm sure you're probably aware, um, there's a very large study involving millions of people that, uh, certainly suggests, if not proves, that uh, only about 6% of our fate, your fate, is tied up in the genes that you inherited from your mother or father. And about 94, 95% of everything that's going to happen to you is because of your environment, your microbiome, the foods you eat, the environmental toxins that you're exposed to. And I actually think that's very liberating, particularly in, you know, in someone who, who has a family history of uh, dementia or heart disease or cancer, because that actually is very much, uh, for the most part, controllable. Uh, I'll give you another example from the book. Women, uh, as you know, have a much higher incidence of dementia and Alzheimer's disease than men, which actually surprises most people uh, because women you know, are healthier than men. But uh, some fascinating data, women who exercise regularly from early adulthood uh, basically prevent uh, dementia as they grow older. And women who carry the quote Alzheimer's gene. I hate that, but it's the APOE 3, 4, and 4, 4 alleles um, that do associate with developing Alzheimer's disease. Those women who carry that, when and if they get Alzheimer's, it's delayed 11 years later than the women who don't exercise. So, I mean, what that means is if we had a drug that said, you know, if you start taking this in early to midlife uh, daily, uh, you have a 90% chance of avoiding dementia. And even if you get it, it'll delay dementia 11 years and you'll be in your late 80s and 90s before it happens. 
we, I mean, that would be the biggest bestseller. I mean, it would be on every, you know, newspaper, magazine stand. It would be all over the internet. And yet this is available. And all you got to do is do a, a few simple exercises, some of which uh, I talk about in the book. Five minutes a day is all I ask. Yeah, I mean, exercise is certainly medicine. Um, one of the things you talk a lot about in the book, um, you talk about animal protein. And, uh, and, and, and in protein consumption in general, you actually, you recommend about, uh, not much, point, <laughs> not much. Yeah. 0.37 grams per kilogram of body weight. And I did the, I did the math for myself. Um, that adds up to about 31 grams of protein per day. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> to, well, to, I mean, why don't we talk a little bit about what animal protein does to us and why you think that that's an important part of the you know, the longevity protocol equation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think probably, uh, Dr. Walter Longo from the longevity center at USC and I, maybe, um, the few people who, um, agree on this, um, certainly the folks from Loma Linda and even some of my, my critics like T. Colin Campbell and Michael Greger would actually agree with this. And, and that is, um, first, let me preface this. I grew up in, in Omaha and Milwaukee. So, uh, I grew up <laughs> the beef state is what Nebraska is called. And I really had a hard time coming to grips with the fact that, uh, animal protein is probably, uh, not your friend in terms of longevity. And to break it down, which I do in the book, uh, there is a basically energy receptor uh, called mTOR. It used to be called the mammalian target of rapamycin, and we now know it exists in all creatures, so it's now the mechanistic target of rapamycin. And so this senses energy availability. And if you think about it, uh, we all normally would acquire food uh, on a circadian basis, there would be times of a lot of food, uh, particularly summer and fall when plants are growing, when animals are getting fat. And there would be a time where there was less food, uh, particularly in winter and spring. And this would cycle. We know uh, studying hunter-gatherer tribes, and in fact, they cycle in this way. And so this energy sensor, mTOR, says, okay, if there's a lot of food available, a lot of energy available. We should we should be growing. Uh, we should be trying to make some babies, and this is this is the time to grow. Just like a plant would grow uh, during the, the spring and summer, and then there would be times when there isn't food, and the energy sensor says, "Uh oh, you know, this is a time where there isn't much energy available, and we should basically batten down the hatches. We should look at every cell." and decide whether a cell is pulling its own weight or whether it looks a little odd or whether it's a drain on the system. And we should actually tell the cell to commit suicide, uh, autophagy, or at the very least, we ought to tell the cell, if you're going to stick around, you better get everything uh, turbocharged, supercharged. You be, better get very energy efficient. And have mitogenesis, increase the number of mitochondria. And this is actually how the system is supposed to work. So it's basically calling the herd. Well, back to mTOR. mTOR looks for energy and it looks for sugar molecules, but it also looks for uh, protein molecules, amino acids. And by whatever design, I'm not smart enough to figure it out, it's actually looking for specific amino acids more than others. And those amino acids, among other things, uh, occur far more in animal protein than they do in plant protein. And there's some very well-designed, uh, particularly animal studies, uh, but Walter Longo has some in humans, that in fact suggests that it's the amino acids in animal proteins that activate mTOR. And so turning off mTOR, as in the drug rapamycin, uh, 
profoundly prolongs the lifespan of experimental animals, including monkeys. So, you know, as sad as, an, as a boy from Nebraska is, um, I think people uh, should limit their animal protein consumption. Uh, barring that, uh, because a lot of people simply aren't willing to do that, the great tricks that I talked about in Plant Paradox and that Walter Longo uh, has developed uh, with his fasting mimicking diet uh, allows you to, to have your cake and eat it too. Um, and what I mean by that is he has shown in, in humans that a five-day-in-a-row calorie-limited vegan diet of about seven to 900 calories, five days in a row, will actually stimulate stem cell growth, will actually stimulate autophagy, will actually stimulate mitogenesis, and will make you behave as if you were calorie restricted. And calorie restriction means about 30% less calories daily, calorie restricted for the entire month. So I mean, wow, who, you know, who wouldn't kind of trade in five days of eating a vegan diet uh, for being calorie restricted your, you know, entire life, which quite frankly, isn't a whole lot of fun. <laughs> um, the Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I uh, well, I just want to, you know, if listeners want to do a deeper dive with Walter Longo, he was my guest on episode eight of the genius life, how fasting can rebuild your immune system. But uh, I just want to dig into the protein recommendation a little bit. I mean, are there any conditions in which you would recommend that people consume higher levels of protein than the, than the 0. 0.37 grams per kilogram? I mean, like what about for people who are on weightlifting regimens, you know, cause I have a lot of people that listen to my podcast that are really into, you know, fitness and. Yeah. So just use, you know, plant-based proteins. And you got to be careful about plant-based proteins because quite frankly, most of them are full of lectins, things like brown rice protein, things like pea protein. You know, that, that's why I designed a protein powder that uses spirulina, hemp, and flaxseed protein as the protein base. And uh, it's unfortunately fairly expensive, but um, I did that because you can build tons of muscle by by eating plants. I mean, for goodness sakes, just look at a gorilla. Uh, a gorilla, all, all they eat is leaves, and they got more muscle than you and I will ever have. A horse, all a horse eats is grass and weeds, and he's got more muscle than we'll ever have. In fact, you know, I, I take care of a number of athletes, and we have to realize that the largest animals uh, on Earth uh, are plant eaters. So they're you're perfectly capable of developing muscle mass with the plant protein. The other thing that I talk about in the book is that uh, there's been a recent study looking at protein supplementation in older men, and it actually did not improve their muscle mass. It did not improve their, um, their energy levels. Where we get the idea that we should have more protein as we get older is actually because of something I talk about in the book, that normally uh, our gut surface area is the same surface area as a tennis court, all kind of coiled up inside of us. And most of us, as I talk about in the book, uh, lectins and other things that we eat destroy a lot of the surface area of our gut. And so imagine that you're tennis court size surface area is now a ping pong table as you get older. And that's why the idea that is you're going to need more protein as you get older, because you actually don't have any absorptive surface. And I just, uh, I just saw a 88 year old gentleman who was, I was actually talking on the phone to uh, when we started, who uh, in six months time, he went from having very low protein in, in his body that we can measure to absolutely normal protein in six months. And I actually cut him back on protein. 
And how he did that was we restored the surface area of his gut uh, at 88 years of age. And, you know, he was shocked. Um, so he was delightedly shocked. That's amazing. Are, are lectins something that we all need to avoid? Or is it, again, sort of a context-dependent um, recommendation? Yeah, so uh, I just got a paper accepted for the vascular biology section of the American Heart Association meeting in, in May in Boston. And I can't tell you the whole results of the paper because that's not allowed, but I can give you the teaser. Um, there's a new test that people can actually get. It comes out of UC Irvine called the PULSE test, P-U-L-S. And it's a very interesting test that is an interesting predictor of developing angina or a heart attack in the next five years. And it basically gives you a percentage chance of, of doing that. And we've been using that test for almost three years now. And what we've asked people to do is get a baseline and then take lectins out of their diet. And we can measure how effectively they do this. And there are several markers on the pulse test that I've described in the past that predict an autoimmune attack on the inside of blood vessels. And I'm convinced that the lectins are a big piece of the autoimmune attack because lectins actually attach to the lining of our blood vessels. And then our immune system attacks them like a splinter. So getting back to this, uh, we looked at this pulse test and showed that people who reduce lectins in their diet dramatically dropped the percentage chance of developing a heart attack or angina in the next five years compared to their baseline. So Yes, I think that uh, lectins are a major cause and a major kind of unwitting cause of uh, coronary artery disease. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dale Bredesen and I think that lectins and their cause of leaky gut are one of the major causes of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia from uh, amyloid coming from the gut being made by bacteria in the gut, coming through a leaky gut, and then inciting neuroinflammation in the brain that I talk extensively about in the book. Now, why haven't lectins, you know, bothered us in the past? Because clearly we've been eating lectins kind of forever. And that is, like I talk about in the plant paradox, is we've had a major line of defenses against lectins, including our microbiome. And our microbiome has, as you and I know, been decimated by uh, antibiotics that we take willy-nilly and that antibiotics that have been fed to virtually all the animals that we eat, including farm-raised fish. And so uh, those antibiotics are in the meat of our beef, pork, lamb, chickens, farm-raised salmon, farm-raised tilapia. And so they've literally destroyed this protective barrier. I think the other thing that's getting, thankfully, more and more and more attention is Roundup and the glyphosate that it contains. Interestingly enough, um, Roundup was patented as an antibiotic by Monsanto. It was not patented as an herbicide. And antibiotic means kill uh, living things, bacteria. And so they knew when they patented it that glyphosate killed bacteria. And yet it's declared safe for us to consume. And you probably saw in the last few weeks that uh, 30, I think 35 oat products in this country, cereals, granolas, bars, uh, all contain, uh, in some cases, very high levels of glyphosate Roundup in those cereals and oat products. So this stuff is now ubiquitous. It's used as a desiccant in almost all of our grains, almost all of our corn, wheat, oats, soybeans, flax seeds are sprayed with uh, Roundup to dry and kill the plant so it's easier to harvest. 
and I got news for folks, it's not washed off before it's fed to our, uh, our animals. It's not washed off before we bake it into bread and cookies and crackers. And so unwittingly, uh, we consume this stuff. And I, I talk about in the book that if you look at the urine of pregnant women, about 95% of pregnant women will have Roundup in their urine. And new studies shows that breastfeeding women have Roundup in their breast milk, which is pretty doggone scary. Oh, it's horrifying. I mean, it's, uh, it's a fact that in the U.S. alone, I believe, glyphosate usage has increased about 16-fold between 1992 and 2009. So, I mean, yeah. this is like something that is not only polluting the environment, but you know, our bodies as well. That's, uh, it, it's pretty terrifying. Yeah. I mean, and unfortunately, as, as you and I know, uh, Bayer Corporation, the largest pharmaceutical in the world, bought Monsanto a couple years ago. And this past year, they convinced the EU to allow Roundup uh, in the EU. And so one of the last bastions of safety where people could safely, you know, eat, uh, that's pretty much over. Um, so, yeah. So is there a, going, going back to lectins and our susceptibility to the damage, um, induced by them, is there a way that we can cultivate more, you know, maybe a higher degree of gut resilience to, the, to these proteins? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Again, we, we really have some, you know, fantastic, systems of protecting us against lectins, and that really starts with the microbiome. The second thing we have is a layer of mucus. Uh, mucus uh, are muc mucopolysaccharides, and lectins are sticky proteins that are actually looking for specific uh, sugar molecules to stick to. And so mucus is actually our major defense system against lectins. In fact, next time, you know, you go get some hot salsa or bite into a jalapeno pepper, you'll notice your nose starts running. And that's actually you producing more mucus to trap the lectins in that hot chili pepper. Wow. Yeah. And so we, you know, we trap these with mucus as our initial defense system. And, and part of the longevity paradox is to teach the reader actually how to generate more mucus. And it, it gets really kind of fun, nerdy stuff to do. Uh, we know that there is a particular bug uh, called Acromancia mucinophilia. Gesundheit. Who, yeah, say that three times. Uh, who actually loves to eat mucus, and it actually lives in the mucus layer that protects all of the lining of our gut. And interestingly enough, the more it lives in the mucus layer and grows, the more it actually produces compounds to stimulate the cells that line our gut to produce more mucus. And so it's this kind of synergistic win-win. The more acromancia mucinophilia we have, the more mucus it makes, and the more mucus we have, the harder it is for lectins to get to the wall of the gut, which is actually their target, because once lectins attach to the wall of our gut, our enterocytes, they flip a switch and break the tight junctions that hold these cells together and they produce leaky gut. And this, this system was worked out by Dr. Fasano from Johns Hopkins a few years ago. So if you've got a layer of mucus, basically lectins will never get to where they really want to cause trouble. So the more of this little friendly bug uh, we got, the better. And there's some really cool tricks. For instance, you know, this bug not only likes mucus, but it loves a sugar called inulin. And inulin is present in large amounts in the chicory family. Things like radicchio, trevigio, frise, chicory itself, uh, Belgian endive, 
and it's also present in Jerusalem artichokes. Or you can actually swallow inulin, and this bug loves inulin. And I, I've always been fascinated uh, when I travel, particularly in France and Italy, that so many of the salads that are available have one or two components of a chicory in them. And I think that, you know, these cultures have figured this out over a very long time, not knowing why they should eat this, but certainly their health probably really improved. Another fun fact, we now know that metformin, you know, the by far the most popular diabetes drug in the world, doesn't work by any fancy, weird chemical reaction. It actually fosters the growth of acromancia. And so a lot of my colleagues in longevity take metformin, the longevity drug. I don't. Uh, I'd much rather feed uh, acromancia what it likes to eat. Really fascinating. Um, it's uh, chicory root, I feel like, should and, uh, and inulin should always come with a disclaimer that eating too much of it can really cause unpleasant things to happen in the, I mean, I, uh, if, if I consume too much chicory root extract, I, I have to quarantine myself because it's, it just, it becomes a fermentation substrate. I feel like that's more powerful than anything, yeah. you know, anything else I've experienced. Well, as you know, as I tell my patients, um, that fermentation process is actually these bugs telling you, uh, thank you so much for giving them the thing they want to eat. And as I remind a lot of my patients, it actually in certain cultures, it is a compliment to the cook to fart at the table. <laughs> I just wish they had a, a less rude means of saying thank you. <laughs> and uh, you, you do build up a tolerance to these things. Um, so it's not it's not a constant battle, quite frankly. That's great. That's that's important to know. So we can we can cultivate amoncia with uh, with eating you know prebiotic fibers and and, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. That's that's great. The other thing that's an interesting trick, and I think it actually gets into the science of fasting. And I I, I spend a lot of time talking about fasting and how to do it and how not to do it, but. We know when you uh, fast, uh, and uh, you know, I'm a, a big proponent of you know, time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting. Uh, I, I think I was actually one of the original people to write about it in my, in my first book uh, 11 years ago, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution. And just as an aside, we actually have an entire chapter on intermittent fasting. And my editor at Random House said, no, 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 this is too nutty. This is crazy. You know, this book is already crazy enough. Uh, I'll give you two pages. I said, no, 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 this is really important. You know, this is the next thing. No, 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 it's too crazy. Well, uh, as we know now, uh, it's not crazy. But one of the benefits of fasting is, again, calling the herd. And when you fast, uh, your bacteria in your gut have nothing to eat. And only the bacteria that are capable of surviving on mucus are the big survivors. And guess what? Acromancia mucinophilia can survive on mucus. So not only does fasting call the herd of all the bad guys, but it prompts Acromancia to go to work on your mucus as the only thing it can eat. And as it eats the mucus, it stimulates your cells to make more mucus. So you basically kind of clean out all the bad bugs and restore your mucus layer. And I think in the future, we'll realize that the, the benefit of fasting was really to reset your gut microbiome and to re-mucinize the lining of your gut. And if you do it for no other reason, uh, that's a really good reason. I love it. Because as, yeah, as people will see, uh, your, your gut, the lining of your gut is basically, basically your skin turned inside out. And what happens at the 
wall of the gut is reflected in your skin. And many people, you know, think that as they get older, their skin is going to get thinner and thinner. And you look at old people and it's paper thin and you touch it and it bleeds and you get bruises. Well, that's actually a reflection of the lining of your gut, how thin and fragile it's gotten. And certainly experiments in uh, flatworms uh, have actually shown that death and debility is actually preceded by this breakdown in the gut wall barrier. And it, it's kind of like, you know, the hordes at the gate uh, taking over the Roman Empire past the walls uh, or the Great Wall of China, the hordes overrunning the walls. And so the book is actually, okay, how to keep you know, this wall strong, how to send in reinforcements to the wall. And if you do that, one of the things that strikes people when they meet me is they go, let me look at your hands. Let me look at your skin. Holy cow, you know, you're, you're an old guy, but you don't have, you know, you got young skin. What's the deal? Well, I, th I think, you know, I'm physically um, much younger than I was 25 years ago, and I've got the pictures to prove it. And I haven't gone to a plastic surgeon or dermatologist. Are there ways of measuring our, uh, I think you're talking about, you know, our, the difference between our biological age and our chronological age. Are there ways yeah. of, of looking under the hood and, and measuring our biological age? Well, one of the things, uh, as you know, I like to follow um, ever since the test was devised is insulin-like growth factor one, IGF-1. Hmm. And IGF-1, if you look at super old people, and I have pleasure of living in Palm Springs, which is uh, nicknamed God's waiting room for a reason. Uh, uh, and I, I get to care for a lot of uh, centenarians, nonagenarians that uh, are actually thriving. And if you look at the literature and certainly my uh, patient population, the folks who are thriving in their late 90s, early, mid 100s, uh, have very, very low insulin-like growth factors levels. And there is a corollary that an elevated insulin-like growth factor uh, predicts not only developing cancer, but also a shortened lifespan. And that's because this is a growth hormone. And one of the things we have to realize is that as we get older, there is nothing in us that we want to grow. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's important is that these people run a remarkably low metabolic rate. And everybody goes, oh my gosh, no, you want a high metabolic rate. Well, you know, if, if your idea is a Lamborghini will get you up to speed very quickly, uh, but a Lamborghini will also empty your wallet very quickly at the gas station because it's burning through fuel. On the other hand, when we look at these super old people, they're running temperatures of 96, um, sometimes 97, but they're certainly not 98.6. So they've become profoundly fuel efficient. Uh, you know, they're basically Toyota Priuses. And they, they're getting a lot more, if you will, miles per gallon. Um, they've, their engines are supercharged and turbocharged, so they can get the power of a Lamborghini with the fuel savings, you know, of a Prius. And so that's what the book is about. Uh, we'll get you all the energy you need. We'll supercharge your mitochondria so that it'll become incredibly fuel efficient rather than fuel wasteful. So how do you then, I mean, because you've got these, you know, uh, older, older adults, and I'm assuming you put them on reduced protein diets, how does that affect risk for, you know, for example, sarcopenia? Well, that's the whole point. Uh, sarcopenia is actually caused by the wall of your gut no longer having surface area. Hmm. Uh, it is not from lack of protein intake. And can you just what, define sarcopenia for, for the listener real quick? Yeah, loss of muscle mass as you get old. Uh, it's a simple way to describe it. 
The other thing uh, is that you actually have, as anyone who lifts weights, is you have to use it or lose it, and you have to stress muscle fibers. You literally have to micro-tear muscle fibers in order to induce more growth. Basically, the, the muscles, you know, call up to the brain and say, hey, you know, there's a war going on down here, you know, with casualties everywhere, send reinforcements, you know, we got we to gotta build new stuff. But one of the things that I've seen and others have seen is that sarcopenia is not from the lack of protein. It's the lack of absorbing protein in the gut wall. Uh, let me give you an example. We know uh, trees, um, plants have a, you know, amazing root system that goes into the soil and the roots are, are surrounded by their own microbiome, uh, bacteria, fungi that actually deliver the nutrients that the plant needs to grow uh, into the root system and then into the plants. Well, the lining of our gut is, is actually our roots. And uh, those of us who remember high school biology might remember the microvilli of the small intestine. And these microvilli, it's if we think of the lining of our intestines as kind of a shag carpet, people will get the idea. And this shag carpet is actually our roots that are rooted in the things we swallow and our microbiome. And so imagine that somebody has shorn your shag carpet so that the surface area of that shag carpet has dramatically reduced, and you get the idea of how there could be two trees planted right next to each other, and one is thriving and the other is dwindling, and if you actually look at what's happening at the root system, the root system of one tree is not in a good microbiome soil, and the root system of the other tree is you know, loaded with all these guys, and that's what's happening in us. Hmm. Going back to IGF-1, because uh, I, I find it fascinating, is there a, a test that, uh, you know, listeners can get from their doctors that can that can measure IGF-1? Is, it, is that being used clinically at this point? Oh, yeah. It's a blood test. That, uh, believe it or not, Medicare will pay for IGF-1. But I think if... Um, if, if, I, if I had one test that I think every human being should get that will tell them just about the same information, not as good, but just about the same information, it would be a fasting insulin level, hmm. uh, not a hemoglobin A1C, although I think that's important, not a fasting glucose, but a fasting insulin level. And insulin... Uh, is also a growth hormone. It's also the fat storage hormone. Uh, for instance, I have yet to see anyone with a colon polyp who doesn't have an elevated insulin level. I've yet to see a man with prostate cancer or, prost or uh, colon cancer who doesn't have an elevated insulin level. The vast majority of women I see with breast cancer have an elevated insulin level. So this stuff is miracle grow to cancer cells. And again, as you and I know, a elevated insulin level in your 40s and 50s predicts uh, mental decline in our late 60s, 70s, and 80s, memory loss. And we could spend an hour just talking about that. What causes um, an elevated fasting insulin level? So, and I talk a lot about this in the longevity paradox. Um, insulin is secreted by your pancreas to handle the sugars you eat and the proteins you eat. And believe it or not, um, insulin is not needed to handle fat. You don't need insulin to handle ketones, but you do need insulin to take sugar and protein and get them out of your circulation. And as an aside, protein converts to sugar. It's called gluconeogenesis. We actually 
don't have a very good protein storage system uh, in our body, and we don't waste energy, so we convert protein into sugar. This was a mistake that Adkins didn't know. Uh, so anyhow, insulin knocks on all your muscle cells, primarily, and says, hey, you know, I got some great stuff here. Anybody hungry? And your muscles say, huh, I'm, I'm stuffed. Couldn't eat, a, couldn't eat a bite. Go Go somewhere else. Also, as I talk about in the plant paradox, and again in the longevity paradox, if you're eating whole grains, particularly whole wheat, you are eating a lectin called wheat germ agglutinin, which binds and blocks insulin receptors on muscles so that you actually can't get these things into muscles. So, and that's where actually I think sarcopenia comes from in these adults who are eating their whole grain, you know, English muffins and their whole grain bread and wondering why their muscles are wasting away. But back to insulin. So insulin doesn't take this lying down. And it comes back with a bunch of its friends with a battering ram and tries to shove sugar and even protein into muscles. And if muscles are full and they're not hungry because you haven't been exercising, they won't accept it. And so insulin says, well, gee whiz, you know, this guy, you know, he's found all this food and I'm not going to waste it because he'll thank me someday when times are rough. So I'll turn it into fat. And so insulin is the fat storage hormone. And so many of my diabetic patients who their docs put them on insulin re re injections, you know, gain 10 or 20 pounds eating the same amount of food. They go, what the heck? You know, I'm blow blowing up like a toad. Well, they're injecting themselves with the fat storage hormone. That's the last thing you want to do if you're a diabetic. So that, so insulin resistance, we now know, as you have written so well about, that the brain, we used to think the brain could use sugar uh, without any problem, really without insulin. And it wasn't until, oh gosh, it's been maybe 15 years now that we realized that the brain has the same system and that the brain can develop insulin resistance. And as you know, some people call it type 3 diabetes or insulin resistance of the brain. And it was this finding that, you know, associated come full circle people who are insulin resistant in their body are insulin resistant in their brain, and their brain basically starves to death. And that's why so many people with insulin resistance are hungry all the time, and they're seeking sugars, because their, their brain says, hey, what the deal? You know, I'm starving to death up here. Give me some sugar. And so you're, you're constantly seeking more sugar, which just compounds the problem. Yeah, I mean, these people are, are essentially overfed and yet cellularly speaking are, are starving. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So it, so it sounds like the diet that you recommend is not only a, a low protein diet, but a low carbohydrate diet because, you know, carbohydrates chiefly are what stimulate insulin. So what, what's left? Yeah, so what do, what do people eat? Well, as, as you know, I'm fond of saying the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. <laughs> and I, I think that most of us should strive to be a gorilla who lives in Italy. And what I mean by that is I think people should mostly eat leaves uh, or vegetables that aren't fruits. Uh, most people who say they eat vegetables are eating fruits like cucumbers or zucchini or tomatoes or peppers. These are not vegetables, they're fruits. And the purpose of eating those things is to get olive oil in your mouth. And you and I have talked extensively about the health benefits to our brain from the polyphenols in olive oil. And it's no wonder that you know two of the described blue zones and Certainly a third one, third blue zone that I talk about, the Acciarolis in southern Italy, use over a, a liter of olive oil per week. And that's, that's a huge amount of olive oil. I, I had uh, David Pohlmeiter on my podcast a few weeks ago, uh, Grain Brain. 
And he, uh, he and I both use a liter of olive oil per week by hook or crook. He actually carries packets of olive oil to, when he go out, goes out to dine. Um, and, and you know that you know, olive oil builds neurons, builds brain cells. How do, um, wait, how does it do that? Well, it, it promotes the stimulation of BDNF, the brain-derived nootropic factor. There's, there's a beautiful study that I'm sure you're well aware of out of Spain. Um, the original purpose of the study was actually to look at memory. And I'll dumb it down. Uh, basically two groups of 65-year-old people. Uh, one group, they both had a Mediterranean diet with Spain, after all. Uh, one group was asked to use a liter of olive oil per week, and they had to bring their container of olive oil back to the clinic every week and exchange it so they knew what the people were doing. The other group was asked to eat a low-fat Mediterranean diet. There was a third group that ate uh, nuts, uh, but for the purpose of discussion, well, we'll mention them. So they were followed for four years, and they broke the study because the olive oil group and the nut group had improved memory over the four-year study. In other words, their memory got better. The uh, low-fat group, their memory declined, as you would expect. You know, they went from 65 to basically 70. They looked at cardiovascular risk, and a lot of these people had uh, high cardiovascular risk. They'd already had stents or bypasses or MIs. And the, the high-risk cardiovascular group, the olive oil group, had a 30% reduction in new events, whereas the low-fat group had an increase of, of events. And so that's, that's pretty impressive evidence uh, in humans that the polyphenols in olive oil um, are one of the smartest things you can do for your brain and your blood vessels. I agree. I'm a huge extra virgin olive oil fan. Uh, my listeners know that. And actually, for anybody listening to this that wants to do a deeper dive, and even for you, Dr. Gundry, I feel like you would really get a kick out of this. Episode 31 of my podcast, I feature one of the world's few oleologists talking all about how to buy the best extra virgin olive oil. It's a really fun episode. I, I will listen. Yeah, check it out. Um, so we're we're almost out of time. I mean, I feel like we could keep going for hours and hours and hours, and I'm sure I'm going to have you back on the uh, on the show. Um, I'm going to ask you the last question that gets asked to everybody on the Genius Life. But before we do, before we get into that, how can listeners connect with you if they have follow up questions? Uh, your book was just released. It's called The Longevity Paradox. Where can people pick it up? Uh, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, please. Uh, they should have uh, adequate copies. Uh, all my other books have been New York Times bestsellers, so people have stocked up on this one. And please make it another New York Times bestseller if your listeners uh, care. Uh, you can find me at drgundry.com. You can find me at gundrymd.com, which is my supplement company. And also we have an extra virgin olive oil that has 30 times more polyphenols than any other olive oil in the world. Uh, I just got back from Morocco to visit the Groves. And then you can find me at the Dr. Gundry podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. And Max, I definitely want to have you on. That'd be great. I'd love that. Yeah. Um, all right, Dr. Gundry. Well, uh, everybody on this show gets asked this, uh, this question that's a bit more philosophical, but I'm really interested to hear your, uh, your take on it. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? Uh, I think the, the key to living a genius life is you should never stop questioning. You should never stop learning. If you think you know it all, that's basically the end of things. The other thing I've learned in, in writing this book and researching and talking to uh, these really, really healthy, super old people, they all feel that one of the things that they're supposed to do is give back. The idea of elders being, you know, a storehouse of wisdom and knowledge has unfortunately been lost, uh, not only in our culture, but in the Japanese culture. 
we've we've probably delegated to the dustbin some of the best storehouses of knowledge there is. And a lot of that, unfortunately, is because uh, our a lot of our elderly have not, as you know, taken care of their brains properly. But these super old folks, they they really think that they're here to, you know, guide those of us coming up. Um, and I think we've, we've neglected that. So uh, honor the wisdom uh, that's accumulated through the years, particularly in those who are still able to share that wisdom. I agree. Oh, my God. Um, well, thank you so much. This has really been uh, super interesting. Lots of food for thought. I'm about to go have a huge uh, salad doused with extra virgin olive oil. Perfect. To all you guys out there listening in podcast land, thank you so much for your time and attention as always. Uh, take a screen grab of this episode, share it on your Instagram stories, tweet a link to it, highlight your favorite um, you know, quote from either me or Dr. Gundry. Uh, throw us you know, any questions. Always happy to, uh, to listen to what you have to say about this episode. Is there something we said that you agree with, that you disagree with, that you want to learn more about? We are all ears. And uh, yeah, I will see you guys on the next episode of The Genius Life. Peace.